Hey, welcome back to That's Helpful. I'm Ed Stott and I am so happy to have you here. My guest today is somebody who I think will be so timely for most of us. It's a conversation that I've been having with a lot of my friends and I'm sure it will be something that's hanging around in the bottom of your mind too. The morning that Sarah Rusbach realized that her relationship with alcohol needed to change, she woke up in bloodstained bedsheets with her five-year-old daughter peering at her face, asking what had happened. It sounds like an extreme story, but Sarah says that her relationship with alcohol would be familiar to so many of us. The night before, she'd been to a 40th birthday party where the wine was flowing, she'd nipped out for a cigarette and reached down to stub it out when she toppled over her heels and landed face first on the concrete. I'm sure you have a similar story. I know I do, where one too many drinks has left you feeling anxious and embarrassed. Sarah says that morning left her with an overwhelming feeling that there was another way of living, and in 2019, she quit booze completely and is now an accredited grey area drinking coach. Sarah, in 2019, did you ever think that four years later that would be your title? No, honestly, because I, <laughs> I stopped in April 2019, right? And so now we're in March 2023. So this time four years ago, my drinking was at its, it was at its peak. It was at such a significant level. And I was so, I was in such a mess mentally, but I couldn't see a way out. And if you'd have told me then that this would be my life now, I'd have just laughed in your face and gone, <laughs> not a chance in hell is that going to be my life. But there you go. You never know what's around the corner, right? Yeah, 100%. And you say that your drinking was at like its height. But I think if you share a little bit more about like what your drinking habits actually were, they're pretty similar to what most of us would drink. So you you talk about like you're in this um, mummy wine culture and that kind of thing. Can you talk a little bit more about how um, your relationship with alcohol actually was back then? And maybe I'll talk a little bit about how it kind of developed because the thing for me was I grew up in the north of England, right? I'm sure that like you, you would have had a similar experience. For me, there was never a question that I wouldn't drink. It was just a matter of when I would drink. I grew up in a house where, you know, my mum and dad, my dad especially drank a lot. It was never problematic. And as a kid, the role modeling I got was adults have fun when they drink. Adults laugh a lot when they drink. Adults sing and do silly things when they drink. This is what you do to have fun when you're an adult. I didn't see my parents do anything else other than get pissed with their mates. And so as a little girl, that was what I grew up thinking would be the norm for me to do. Um, another thing that had, I think is relevant to my story is that by the time I was 13, I'd been to six different schools. I'd moved around a lot. I had kind of unknowingly to me at the time, kind of probably developed this kind of persona in my always the new kid, always had to fit in, always had to try hard to make friends and get people to like me. And then at 14, I discovered alcohol, which was a way that we would, you know, go to our parents' drinks cabinet, get the soda stream bottle, fill it up with a bit of Malibu, a bit of martini, a bit of Cinzano, a bit of Southern Comfort, mix a bit of Coke at the top, go down the local park and um get pissed and piss the boys from the local estate. And that was like initiation into drinking, which is probably a lot of your listeners are like, they're going, yeah, yeah, that was what happened to me as well. And so it wasn't problematic. That was kind of what we did in those days, right? And all through my teens and 20s, alcohol featured heavily and highly, but never in a way that was problematic. I didn't really get hangovers. I drank a lot. 
developed into partying quite a lot. There was recreational drugs. There was all of that scene. But for me, it was it was never a bad thing. It always just added, I thought, enhanced my my life. And it was just something that I'd never really made friends without alcohol. I'd never socialized without alcohol. That was kind of what happened. The turning point for me was after having kids and us moving to Australia was all of a sudden I couldn't go out whenever I wanted um, because I only ever drank really when I socialized, but I just socialized a lot. And so, and I was in London, but um, before we moved here. And so, you know, every night of the week, there's someone to go and get pissed with. Every night of the week, there's someone to, because no one tries, everyone gets the tube everywhere. So Monday night was the same as Friday night. So I've come from that. And then we made the decision to, to move to Perth and everything in my life changed. So I'd had a really um, fulfilling career. I was director of a recruitment firm, loved my job at the time. I had a really close group of girlfriends. I'd just had, um, I had two babies in very quick succession and I'd had support around me. And then we'd moved to Perth and I suddenly had no friends, no family, no job, no identity. And I was really, really struggling. Like mentally, I was homesick. I was lonely. I was sad. My husband was going out to work all day. I was bloody pureeing pear and going to baby rhyme time. And I was just, I just lost myself. I didn't know. And the only way I'd ever known how to make friends was with alcohol, because that had kind of been what I'd done to make friends for the last 20 years. So I was going to these mother's groups and going, who wants to come and get pissed with me? And they've all got like babies hanging off their boobs, looking at me going, who's the crazy English girl that just wants to get smashed all the time? And so I then thought, oh, nobody likes me. So then that sent me spiraling even more because I was kind of going, why does no one want to be my friend? Why does no one want to go and get drunk with me? Because I just didn't know how to form friendships because I'd not done it for so long. So I then started drinking on my own. And that's when I started drinking more at home on my own. And this is coupled with mummy wine culture where we're incessantly getting that message. Mum deserves wine. Mum, you know, I wine because my mum drinks wine because I wine and all those bloody baby grows that are out there and everything like that. And you just didn't have to tell me twice that I deserved a wine at the end of the day because I was already cracking it open. And so that was kind of the story of where it had got to was it was just this slow gradual build up but it certainly got to the point where alcohol was a crutch it was a friend it was something that prevented me from feeling lonely and sad it took those feelings away albeit temporarily and it made me feel a sense of of being able to cope with life in some way um, I was looking forward to that evening that evening drink. My husband would come home from work and I'd just be stood at the end of the driveway with two kids and I'd have tears streaming down my face and I would just hand him the kids and go and sit in the garden with my bottle of wine and my pack of marble lights. And, and, and that was kind of what I was doing more and more and more. The problem was that it started taking more and more and more and my mental health really started to decline and it was impacting me in so many ways. And and then that kind of all accumulated into this, that one point at that 40th birthday party with that, that accident and that bloodstained sheets and my daughter waking up and, and, and me waking up to my daughter going, mommy, what happened to your face? And you know that moment where you'd forgotten what had happened the night before and then suddenly you remember. And I was just like, oh my 
is I fell over and made a complete dick of myself in front of all those people. And why do I always get so drunk? Why am I always the one that, that can't moderate? Why am I always the one that goes too far? And that was probably a blessing in disguise, really. Do you think, um, you know, at that point, obviously, you were starting to realize that you you need to reassess your relationship with alcohol. But do you think that anybody else around you would have said that you had a problem with drinking at that point? I don't think they would have said I had a problem. I think they would have said Sarah drinks a lot. Sarah's yeah, you like a drink. Sarah's a big drinker. Mm-hmm. Because I, I still, like, by this point, I had my own business. I was still running. I ran half marathons because this was my way of justifying the fact that I couldn't possibly have a problem with alcohol because I wouldn't be able to run a half marathon if, if, if I had a problem. So on the outside, to most people, I was Sarah the party girl, Sarah the big drinker, occasionally Sarah who went too far and had to be put home to bed. Um, but that's all, you know, we've all been there, done that, nothing to worry about type thing. So no, I don't think anyone would have gone, Sarah has a problem. Really interesting because I think when you're walking us through this story, I reckon there's going to be so uh, many commonalities for so many people. So tell me about, you You obviously woke up after that 40th birthday party and thought, okay, I don't want to feel like this anymore. But tell me about when you started to reassess your own relationship with alcohol. Was it an instant thing that you decided, okay, this has got to change, here I'm going to go about it, or was it a gradual realisation? It was really gradual, and and what's really interesting to me when I look back on that that day is I had such shame and such remorse, and I didn't know how to process those emotions, and so I drank. And I couldn't drink with a cup to my lips because all of my lips were so smashed and swollen, so I had to drink my wine through a straw in the corner of my mouth, but it, I couldn't not drink because I felt so wretched and so disgusting and I hated myself so much in that moment that the only way that I could not feel like that was to drink because I didn't know any other way to process those emotions. So I drank, but I, it had shocked me. And the next day I remember I went to the chemist because my face was so badly cut and I needed to know what I could do. And she gave me some creams and stuff and then she slipped me a card for domestic violence support because she thought that my husband had beat me up and I just got in the car and I just sobbed because I was like wow what are you doing Sarah like what the hell to the point where on a Monday morning you're going to the chemist and the chemist is giving you a support group for domestic violence because you've hurt yourself drinking to the point that she thinks that you've been affected by DV with your husband. And it it was a real eye-opening moment for me. I'd love to say that that was it and I never drank again, but that certainly wasn't the case. Um, Three weeks later, um, another 40, and I had gone to a friend's you know those afternoon teas where it's free-flowing booze for three hours? We used to love those because it was like, just drink as much as you can for $50. Goodness um, me. So we started at 12. Um, and I got home at half past two in the morning. That was 14, what, 12, 14 and a half hours of drinking champagne. And Sunday morning, I had to take my son to cricket and my husband had gone fishing. 
and I woke up to my son standing at the end of the bed in his cricket gear going, Mom, are we ready to go? And I knew I couldn't drive. I knew I was still over the limit. I, knew, I stood up and I, my hands were shaking so much. And so I couldn't drive my son to the thing that he loved doing most in the world because his mum was still pissed at eight o'clock in the morning. And that was another, and that was as hard hitting as the first incident. And as I think life unfolds in the way that it does, I was scrolling Facebook that day because of course I had nothing, no ability to do anything else but lie on the sofa and scroll Facebook. And someone in my running group had posted that they'd read a book about changing their relationship with alcohol. And, you know, I was meant to read that book. I was meant to see that post that day. Mm. And so I said, right, I'll take 21 days off. This was in 2017. I'll take 21 days off and then I'll be able to just get on top of this. I've just been drinking a bit too much. So I ordered the book, made my pledge to 21 days. The book arrived. I read it. And what I learned in that book just changed the way I saw alcohol, the way I saw my relationship with alcohol. And it got to the 21 days and I was like, oh no, I'm going to keep going. And I got to 100 days. And so I did that three months off. But then I was like, well, oh, but I can't never drink again. That would just be weird. I'm Sarah the party girl. I'm Sarah the boozer. Like, but it's fine. I've done three months. So now I'll be able to moderate. Now I'll be a normal drinker. All my problems will be fixed because I've taken three months off. And so it's okay. So I went back to drinking. And within a month, I was drinking the same amount, probably more than before. And that was between 2017 and 2019 that my drinking went from severe binge drinking to periods of abstinence, to severe binge drinking, to periods of abstinence, constantly trying so hard to moderate. I've just got to try harder. I've just got to try harder to be a normal drinker. And then finally, April 2019, I just knew that I had, I was done. I was absolutely done and I had my last drink and, and that was it. Yeah, wow. That's it's I mean, it's an amazing um thing that you've done and quite incredible. So how you decided obviously that you needed to start to reassess your relationship with alcohol. Um and you kind of learned about this this area of drinking that you referred to as grey area drinking. So what what is grey area drinking and why does it differ from alcoholism or binge drinking or those kinds of behaviors like what's the difference so up until recently the conversation about alcohol has been you're an alcoholic or you're not so like you and I would have grown up well I don't know how old you um you're probably a lot younger than I am but I grew up with watching Dallas and Dynasty and shows like that I would remember Sue Ellen was like the alcoholic character and she would drink in the morning and never get dressed and everything was just tragic and then there was Ange in EastEnders and she was just always in her pyjamas drinking and so the role models you have of what an alcoholic is is someone in their pyjamas that drinks in the morning that wakes with trembling hands doesn't get dressed and is you know their life is is pretty much written off and that's just but if you don't identify as that then what are you because that's me I I ran half marathons for goodness sake I, I raised two children I ran a successful business and I still drank and gray area drinking is is where we look at this as being a scale. It's not about you're an alcoholic or you're not. And I think of that scale as being, you know, maybe one to 10 and one being someone who never drinks or, or has a glass of champagne at a wedding and 10 being your Sue Ellen, the person that wakes up in the morning and drinks the moment they wake. What's in the middle? 
and gray area I consider to be about a four to an eight on that scale. Yeah, interesting. And um, we've talked, we touched on a little bit more, uh, more in our conversation. But how do you think our culture has started to make us feel like this gray area drinking is totally normal, um, and and you know it's not a problem. And that's the biggest problem that there is, Ed, is that we've normalized daily drinking. We've normalized alcohol as self-care. We've normalized that you have to have alcohol to have fun. And that's been done. We've done it ourselves with social media. But it's also product placement. It's not just the direct advertising. It's also like every police drama show that you watch with a female lead character and you watch her get home from a stressful day at work and before she's even taken her coat off she walks to the fridge and she takes that wine and pours it and you see her physically relax as she has that first sip like we are being exposed constantly to this message that we deserve alcohol alcohol relaxes us alcohol's a reward alcohol is self-care and so we are just at this point where it's totally expected and totally normal that you would drink most nights of the week. And no one is talking about the impact this has, particularly on women, because when it comes to women, we are such the weaker sex when it comes to how we metabolize alcohol. And so how does alcohol affect our bodies, particularly, you know, for women? So there's a few things for women. Number one is we actually have less of an enzyme that metabolizes alcohol called alcohol dehydrogenase. And what this enzyme does is it breaks down alcohol quickly and gets it out of our system. Men have it in abundance, women don't. So more alcohol enters a woman's bloodstream than a man's. So women are more prone to heart disease, um, to the cancers that are affect, caused by cancer, to stroke, to liver disease. The other thing that's really important to know is that once women hit their perimenopause years, which can be from about 40 onwards, our liver volume shrinks by up to 40%. So this is why a woman cannot, why we start getting hangovers and, and feeling the effects of alcohol so much more in our 40s than we did in our 20s and 30s. Wow. No one's talking about this. Like, I've never no heard that. that. I had no I've idea. I've never heard that. Yeah. And so I just didn't understand why suddenly in my 40s I was, unable to sleep when I drank. My anxiety was so much worse. I, my hangovers were so much worse. Sometimes I just, all I could do was lie on the sofa. Whereas 10 years earlier, I'd been up and out at the gym. It barely touched the sides. And so for women, that that's a, a big problem. And then the other problem, because our liver cannot process the alcohol um, as effectively, this has a hormone effect on things like estrogen, because estrogen also has to be metabolized by the liver. And if the liver is having to constantly work at metabolizing alcohol, it never has a chance to get to estrogen. And that's where we become estrogen dominant. And that's where the link becomes to alcohol and hormone-related cancers. Wow. Okay. And so how has your life changed, you know, both physically and just in your world since you stopped drinking? It's just been astonishing. And, and, and I think the biggest thing is that you start to develop a sense of mental clarity, positivity, hope. You start to really notice and have gratitude for your life because my life used to revolve around getting through the day with the kids, with work, with housework, with all of those things to be able to have my drink. And I kind of missed so many things that were right under my nose in my life because 
I was just going for that end goal of when I was having my wine. And if I wasn't drinking that day, it was because I was saving up because I knew I was going to be having a big night a couple of nights later. So I wanted to make sure that I was on form for that night. Like a lot of things in my head revolved around when I was drinking and those nights. And when I removed alcohol, it it gave a sense of complete freedom. It, it meant that I started sleeping better. I got more energy. My estrogen dominance reversed. My skin looks like it's the best anti-aging. My friend said to me, I think you're aging backwards because I've just turned 47 and my skin looks better than it did when I was 42. And so like, you know, things like that are incredible. I've lost weight. Um, I have this less bloating. Like there's so many things that start to happen physically. Um, my gut health is repaired, but the mental side is, is what's really, really changed because I've got energy and mental clarity and motivation and I've started to follow my dreams. Like I'm writing a book. If you'd have told me ever before, like that was a childhood dream of mine from the age of like five and it's happening. And I love women and bringing women together and creating community. And I've now running a, a community of 14,000 women from all over the world. I've set up my business as a gray area drinking coach and I'm empowering and supporting women to do that. And I'm just constantly learning and constantly, like my life is so fulfilling and so purposeful compared to to what it was before. And the most important thing for me, the absolute number one most important thing is that I role model to my kids that adults can have fun without booze. And that's not to say that I'm saying that they shouldn't drink, but I want them to know you can do other things and there are other ways to enjoy your life without it having to have a glass of wine in your hand. Mm, I think that's so true. So how do we get a piece of this? It sounds great. <laughs> what are some of the signs that we might need to reassess our relationship um, with drinking? And and how, where do we start with that? You know, it took you said there that it took you a couple of times, a couple of, you know, wake up calls for you to realize that you needed to reassess. But if we're listening to this and we're thinking, yeah, you know, it might not be my relationship isn't terrible with alcohol, but perhaps I need to reassess it. Where do we start with that? So it's a great place to start is to just start noticing the impact that alcohol is having on you. So for me, it got to the point where it was taking more than it was giving. And I think when we pass that tipping point where it used to be 90% fun, 10% a bit shit, and then it just got to the point where it was about 20% fun and 80% suffering for it. And and so it was starting to to create that that mindset around what it's taking or, or giving. And then there are some warning signs as well. So do you find that you wake up in the morning saying, right, gosh, I'm not drinking tonight. I feel like I'm definitely not going to drink for a couple of nights. And then by five o'clock, you're opening wine because you've had a stressful day and you've got nothing else in your toolkit. You don't know how else to um to to manage with your life second thing is that you make rules around your drinking because people that don't have a problem with drinking don't make rules and people that have rules generally are starting to get on that ladder that one to ten ladder where we're starting to go okay so my rules would be i'm not allowed to drink on a monday and tuesday i'm not allowed to drink on my own at home but then i always broke it i'm not allowed to drink at lunchtime unless it's out of the house with friends over like you know when we're making rules and then usually breaking them we're getting into that that gray area for sure when we say i'm only going to have one or two and we always end up having more when we notice our reaction to going on a night out where we can't drink and our reaction might be well, there's no point going or or we feel like that i mean that was how i was 
I was like, but what's the hell? But why would I go to that thing if I can't drink? Um, and so if we're in that place, and I say to clients, like, I run 30-day programs um, four times a year, and they're incredible, and, and the, the vibe in the group is amazing. And if I then suggested it to someone, and then they go, oh, but I couldn't stop for 30 days. Well, if you can't stop for 30 days, you definitely need to do the program, because if you can't <laughs> take a month off, then there's definitely a problem there, right? Yeah, really interesting. And so one of the big things um, that people, and particularly for women, um, will get often if you're a younger woman, as soon as you say you're not drinking, then people immediately assume you're pregnant or they'll pressure you into having a drink. Oh, come on, we're all having a drink. Blah, blah, blah. So what was pe- what were people's reactions when you told everyone that you weren't drinking? And how can we navigate that ourselves if we decide that we need to reassess our relationship with alcohol? It's really hard it, at, at first. And I didn't handle it as well as I could have because where I first stopped in, stopped in 2017, there wasn't the support and the resources available no. that there is now. Like now there's so much available. But back then there was very little. So I kind of diminished it. I didn't ever come out and say, look, alcohol's really affecting me and I've been drinking more than you realize and I've been drinking on my own at home and my anxiety's been through the roof and it's really affecting my sleep. I didn't tell anyone that. I just was like, oh yeah, I'm just taking a break. And if people think that it's just for no other reason than that, they try and convince you to drink and they're like, oh, come on, don't be so boring. Come and just have one. Whereas I think if I'd been a bit more honest, it, I don't think it would have been as difficult. And I think that, that that's what I take say to most of my clients is, you know, honesty and vulnerability creates deeper connections. And mm. even if there's one or two people that you can be open with and just go, look, I'm, I've been struggling a bit with my drinking. It's worrying me that I'm drinking more than I want. It's worrying me that it's my go-to. Every time I feel stressed or anxious, my immediate thought is I must drink wine. And and, I, and that's not the direction I want to go in. So I'm going to take a break for a while. And I'd really love your support. And, and the other thing is it's starting to recognize um, what do you do with your friends that doesn't involve drinking? Do you do anything mm-hmm. with them that doesn't involve drinking? Because I probably didn't do a huge amount with my friends. That, and 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 what we do now is I've got a lot, all my friends, like lots of them still drink. But if they're going on a huge bend and night out, I just probably won't go because that, that's not a huge amount of fun for me to stand watching them all get pissed or all go and I'll stay for a couple of hours. And then when they start spitting in my face and repeating themselves, I just go <laughs> home. And I'm like, yeah, I'm done. But then I do lots of things with them where we have breakfasts, we have lunches, we go and do activities together. We we I, like we share stuff together that's creating deeper connections that isn't just about, you know, sitting in someone's garden, drinking wine, ignoring the kids and smoking fags behind the, the washing line, you know. It's <laughs> a bit different to that now. Yeah, fair. And um, I guess also like if you're that friend or that person in the group who's constantly trying to pressure somebody who's saying they're not drinking, stop doing it. I really hate that when people say that, oh, I'm not drinking. It's like, just leave that be. Do you think that those people who are trying to, you know, like, and I'm not trying to be um, awful about this, but do you think that people who can't sit there and watch another person not have a drink maybe need to reassess their relationship with alcohol too? Absolutely. Like, I was that person. Got, but mm. I had a problem with drinking. Like the people that shout the loudest about you not drinking are the people that usually have the biggest problem. And so because it shines a light on their drinking if you stop or they get worried that they're going to lose their drinking partner buddy and and so it's threatening 
for them. And so it is, um, it's a hard thing to navigate. It really is. But that's why I run the programs I do to help women. My programs are only for women and um, navigate changing your drinking in a society that promotes alcohol everywhere we go. I mean, I've done yoga classes that have had champagne at the end. I've run half marathons that give you champagne at the end. I've gone to birthday parties where you're given champagne at 10 a.m. Like alcohol is everywhere. And so getting the support and guidance to navigate changing our drinking is so important because it's hard. It is hard. Mm, And we did, um, I had a chat with a guy who's done a lot of research into um, dry January in the UK. And he also said that um, like the reason why dry, dry January works so well is because you have that collective. You feel like you're part of a group. So if you're doing it with people, way more likely to actually stick to it and work through it. So I really, um, I really relate to what you're saying with the group. And um, when you um, referred to how alcohol affected your life, you spoke about how... Um, it made you much more anxious. And I'm sure that this is super common for everybody listening because everybody's woken up and had the guilt. You know, you, you feel, you just feel like you've done something wrong and it's horrible. And why does alcohol make anxiety so much worse? So when we drink alcohol, it works on the inhibitory part of the brain that causes a big surge of a hormone called GABA. And that is something that makes us feel calm and relaxed. But our brain wants all of our neurotransmitters to be at exactly the right level in balance all of the time. So the brain goes, whoa, we've just had a huge surge of a depressant. So in order to counter it, to get everything back in balance, I'm going to give a huge surge of cortisol, which is the stress hormone, to balance the depressant that has just been caused by alcohol. The problem is that the alcohol wears off after about 20 minutes. And then we're left with excess cortisol, which is the stress hormone running around our body. This is what keeps us and um, prevents us from getting great sleep when we wake up at 3 a.m. and can't get back to sleep. Um, and it's what causes the anxiety. And they've actually done a study that has shown even people that drink, you know, a couple of glasses of wine three or four nights a week have a higher base level of the stress hormone cortisol in their body than people who don't drink at all. Wow. Wow. Jeez, it's, it's so interesting, isn't it, when you start to dig into it and how it's actually affecting us. You also say that our sex lives will change. Why is that? Well, for some, it's for the better, or for some, it's harder. Because I've got some clients who they, they've been happily married for years, but they haven't had sex without drinking for a really long time. Um, and that can take some time to navigate. But I do find that for most women, once they can relax into it, that, you know, alcohol is a depressant, it numbs you. So you actually feel the sensation so much more. You actually get so much more intimacy and so much more satisfaction because if you can relax enough, but it does mean having to, you know, be be able to get to the point when you can relax um, into it. Because so many clients, you know, we have so many, us women, female hangups about our bodies, about... And that's why we've got to that point where we're we're drinking a bottle of wine, just feel comfortable getting naked. And so it's starting to work on loving our bodies as well. Yeah, I think that's a really important um, thing to consider. So how quickly after cutting alcohol would we start to notice a change in the way that we feel? It's really different for everyone. Um, it depends how much we've been drinking, for how long we've been drinking, our body, any other issues that we've got. 
the other danger zone of, of something I see that happens is lots of my clients swap alcohol for sugar because the alcohol lights up the dopamine reward center in the brain. And so when we remove the alcohol, that dopamine reward center is going, feed me, feed me, find something else to give me a high. And so we swap it for sugar and sugar doesn't make us feel great. And so a lot of clients, I find that they, they don't get the results as quickly as they would like in terms of how much energy they have and how much their sleep improves if they're having lots and lots of sugar. So it is just something to be mindful. But generally speaking, most of my clients will start feeling better within two to four weeks physically. But it takes a while. And like, it takes 72 hours for alcohol to leave the system. It takes up to two years for the neurotransmitters in the brain to, to rebalance after alcohol use. Wow. Jeez. It's quite remarkable, isn't it? So um, if we're listening to this and we're thinking, yeah, I really want to reassess my um, relationship with alcohol and, you know, even scale back or start to rebuild that relationship, you know, like you've referred to, there's like that five o'clock where we'd normally sit down and have a glass of wine or... It's like that that party that we go to and we always have a glass of wine there or, you know, those certain habits and routines that we get into that we, we then associate with alcohol. How can we kind of ease that experience and make it a little um, less of a struggle to get through those times when we'd normally reach for the bottle? So there's two things that I really suggest. The first is change up your routine. So for me, I started going to a five o'clock Friday night gym class because it just got me out the house. Like it, I got the endorphin hit, the dopamine hit, it was body attack. There was like songs that you just like- body attack. Know, full on class, but I- it, Tell me it was Les Mills. It was Les Mills. It was <laughs> yeah, I love Les Mills. <laughs> Five o'clock on a Friday. That class got me sober, right? Because Friday was my worst night, um, like the hardest night. So getting out the house, doing something that raised my dopamine and endorphins level. And I would go there kicking and screaming. And I'd be like, I can't bloody ask the ass doing this. Why am I doing this on a Friday night? And you'd look around at all the other middle-aged women who were there as well. But at least it stops me having a wine. Uh, but you'd all have such a laugh when you'd do it. And then, you'd, you know, you'd head home. So then breaking up the routine, the other thing I used to do was I used to um, do a lot of slow cook at dinners and I'd prepare them in the morning so I didn't have to be in the kitchen at night. And then the times that I would have been cooking, I would go and run a bath. And I would just like, I love a bath. The bath for me is like heaven. Um, and it was winter when I stopped. And so most nights I would go, right, kids, it's your TV time. The cooker, like the food's in the, in the slow cooker at five o'clock. I'd go into the bath and I'd take my favorite book, my favorite bubbles, um, like bubble bath. And, and that was just a, another way of just resetting my nervous system. So those were, you know, changing up your routine really helped. And the other thing is, keep the ritual, change the ingredient. And that's where alcohol-free drinks I have found to be absolutely brilliant for myself and lots of my clients, because sometimes it's just that ritual of pouring a nice drink into a glass. And so many people say to me, but why would you want fake wine? And I'm like, because I still like to taste an adult tasting drink. I just don't want the alcohol in it. But to get, you can get really great dry alcohol-free champagnes now that are low sugar, they taste amazing. And they just don't have the alcohol content. Me and my husband have started doing this. Um, we are so guilty of this because we do love a drink. And especially in the week. And Dan's away a lot. So when he gets back, it's like party mode again. You know, like he comes back. He's probably away for more than six months of the year. And then when he comes back, it's like, oh, we've got to make the most of the time. Um, but we started buying alcohol-free beer. Delicious. I, I used to drink all like mid-strength beer anyway to so like 3.5%. 
the zero percent drinks, I, I don't even notice the difference. I couldn't tell if you put yeah. them in front of me. No different. And then I also bought like a couple of real nice cordials that um I'll have a drink of, or even just like tonic water. And I genuinely don't notice the difference. And I'm really angry that for so long that I thought it was the alcohol that was hitting the spot, but really it was just that nice ritual where you sit down together, you, you know, unwind at the end of the day. And alcohol has nothing to do with that. No, like it's they've done studies that show that we start releasing dopamine in anticipation of having a drink. So it's not even when the alcohol hits the brain, it's the anticipation of it. So if we can get that from pouring a really nice alcohol-free champagne or an alcohol-free gin and tonic, then we're still getting the dopamine hit. We just don't need to have the alcohol. Yeah, that's really good. So what's the best um, alcohol-free wine you found? An alcohol-free drink? What are your best recommendations? So I love Naughty which is one of my absolute favorite alcohol-free champagnes. And if anyone goes onto my website, I've got a page on there of all my oh, recommendations. Of we might put it in the show notes. Champagnes. And there's a discount code as well that you can use um, to shop in Australia. There's one for New Zealand and there's one for the UK. Awesome. Great tips. Thank you so much. That's fantastic. I have a buddy who... Um, Actually, she's mid-30s and has just realized that she's got an uh, allergy to alcohol. And like you were saying, you know, like the liver can't process it in the same way. And she always used to think that she was having hangovers when in actual fact she thinks that she's been allergic to alcohol this entire time and her body's just gotten less um, good at processing it. And she started going through the alcohol-free wise. It's so interesting, isn't it? You go through these stages of life and I'm like... I feel like everyone around me right now is reevaluating their relationship with alcohol, which is so great. Um, do you think it's ever a good idea to just try and scale back the amount that we're drinking, or is that not enough, or does it depend on the situation? It depends on the person, but in my experience, when you've gone from being a take-it-or-leave-it drinker, whenever yeah. you've formed any kind of dependency on alcohol in any way whatsoever doesn't have to be a physical dependency, but that association in your brain, when I'm stressed, wine relaxes me. When I'm angry, wine helps me calm down. When I'm sad, alcohol's my friend. Whenever we've created those neural pathways, they're never going to go away. And yep. so, and, and we've got to also remember that alcohol is up there with one of the top five most addictive substances in the world. So we've developed addiction to it and we also develop tolerance, which means we need more and more. So I say to everyone, Give yourself a break and give yourself yeah. the opportunity to see how you feel and what your life is like without it. Because most people in the Western world will never take a long enough break to know what their body, what their life, nah. what their brain, what their mind, what they are like without it. And give yourself that break and then reassess what role does alcohol have in your life and how do you want it to be. But I feel like we've got to get that distance and have a clean break to really assess where we're at with it. I really think that is so true, a hundred percent. That's so de definitely so true. And so, um, you know, one of the challenges we've spoken about a couple of the challenges of when you start to um, reevaluate your relationship with alcohol and start to um, change the way that you uh, drink it or give it up totally. Are there any other challenges that we might come across that we should be aware of, and how can we handle those? So, I think stress is one of the biggest ones. Um, yeah, I did a poll in my group and I asked what's the number one reason you drink? And the overwhelming response was stress to the point that uh, so many people were replying saying, just to escape my life. And my biggest number one core message is, 
if we take alcohol out, we've got to be adding something in because uh, alcohol's been serving a role for us. It's been there for a purpose. And so we can't just take it out and cross off the days and hang on for dear life and expect that our life's going to change because it won't. And then we'll just be back drinking again, probably more than before, before we know it. And that's while, while alcohol-free months like your dry July and dry January and stuff are brilliant, they can also be damaging because if people don't do the work of adding stuff in at the same time, they get this false sense of, well, I've just sat at home for a month. I didn't leave the house. I didn't go out. I've crossed the days off my calendar. Right. Okay. Now I can go and drink again. Whereas we, the way that I teach it and the way I do it in my programs is, okay, we're taking alcohol out. Now, what are we adding in? What are you doing for fun this month? What are you doing to get a creative outlet this month? What are you doing to give you a sense of purpose this month? What are you doing to make sure you still have connections with your mates this month? And so it's so important if we take it out that we're adding stuff in as well. Yeah, so sh- I guess shift that focus from what you're losing to what you see the fact that you're gaining so much more. Exactly, exactly. And then I also share so much in the program with ways that we can manage stress without having to always hit the bottle. Yeah, that's so good. Wow, I've learned so much. If people only take one thing from our conversation about grey area drinking, what do you want them to take? Give yourself the opportunity to see how you feel without it. Because like I said before, it stays in your body for 72 hours. Even if you've only had a couple of drinks on a night, it's still going to affect your sleep. It's still going to have created a neurotransmitter response that's releasing more cortisol in your body. Like, Give yourself that chance to see how do I feel without alcohol and what role does it have in my life? I love that. Thank you so much for joining us, Sarah. I really appreciate it. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for having me. Sarah Rusbach is a great area drinking coach and I'll pop all the notes in the sh- all the links in the show notes so that you can get in touch with Sarah and learn more about her programs and also those recommendations for alcohol free wines because I know you're going to want them. I absolutely do. Thank you so much for joining me. Don't forget that if you want extra episodes, bonus content, behind the scenes content too because you know my life is very exciting and you want more of it you can join my patreon for as little as five dollars a month the link is in the show notes i really appreciate your support and all your beautiful reviews that you leave on uh, apple podcast and wherever you listen we've reached a hundred beautiful reviews on there and genuinely it makes my day every time i read one so thank you so much for leaving them and if you haven't done so i would really appreciate you leaving one it makes such a difference All right, I'll catch you again next time. I'm Ed Stott and I sincerely hope that's helpful.